Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that are satisfying your mind year in and year out. As many of you know, for about five, six years of my life, I flew around the country, worked with companies, and did workshops on everything from effectiveness, productivity, communication, and more. In essence, I would stand up in front of a room of adults and try to explain to them how do you change your behavior to get the results you want? And there was a phrase I always used, which was this. Imagine how hard it is to change your behavior. Now imagine how hard it is for somebody else to change your behavior. The truth is all change comes from the inside and all I could try to do is help you get there. Now why I bring that up is because in this week's episode, we are actually talking about how can you change other people? Why would you want to? Is it manipulation or encouragement? It's a complicated subject, so we brought in the experts. This week on the show, we are talking with two people. Yes, that's right, two for the price of one. We're talking with Peter Bregman and Howie Jacobson. They are authors of the new book, You Can Change Other People, The Four Steps to Help Your Colleagues, Employees, Even Family Up Their Game. A little bit about each of them. Peter Bregman is the CEO of Bregman Partners. He coaches, writes, teaches, speaks, all that good stuff. He's been everywhere, you name it. Fast Company, Psychology Today, Forbes, CNN, NPR. He's a best-selling author of five books and was actually designated as the number one executive coach in the world. He had his MBA from Columbia and his BA from Princeton. Smart guy, right? How about Howie? Howie is an executive coach and a director at Bregman Partners. Howie earned his MPH and PhD in health studies from Temple University and his BA from Princeton. That's a whole lot of acronyms and colleges and universities and stuff in one episode. Excited to bring it to you. Before we get into it, I'm trying to change your behavior. Listen, we could use a boost. Would you tell a friend about the show? Maybe reach out on social media to a few people directly and say, hey, I know you listen to podcasts. Check out this one. Whatever you can do to spread the word is worth more than its weight in gold. And be sure you are subscribed to the podcast because 
We are going to weekly episodes in the near future, if all goes right, and you don't want to miss them. Let's get into it, our episode with Peter Bregman and Howie Jacobson on how you can change other people. Enjoy. All right, let's do it. Well, Peter and Howie, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having us. It's really fun to be with you. Yep. You know, I was just telling you guys, the listeners know this, but this is the first two guest video interview that I've done. And it's, it's throwing me off my game. I don't know what to do. So we're going to see where this goes. That's okay. We're going to, we'll do our best to talk over each other. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate the challenge. So there's a number of things I want to talk about today, but as we've got two guests on and uh, you both work at the same place and all this. I'd love to just quick introduction so we can learn who's who, whose voice is who. Uh, so what do you do? How'd you get there? You know, two minute spiel here. Two minutes to wrap up my life. Um, <laughs> right. I, I, uh, I run Bregman Partners. I started it in uh, 98. Uh, it, our focus is on coaching people to be exceptional leaders and stellar human beings. Uh, got my start running expeditions for Knowles and Outward Bound, just sort of 30-day trips out in the woods teaching leadership and kind of fell in love with development and leadership and, you know, somewhat alternative ways of getting to the heart of the matter and helping people change. Look at that. You could do it in 30 seconds. It's like you've practiced. Howie, what about you? Wow. Well, so, somebody got his money's worth out of that media training we did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can I have your other minute and a half? Um, yes, yeah. you can. <laughs> yeah. So I was, I've been a, I was a teacher ever since leaving college. And as I said, I met Peter and I met in 99 and I had been I just got my my Ph.D. And you can get a successfully get a Ph.D. and still have a failed experiment. Because right? mm. all you got to do is write about it. You don't actually have to. And my, I had to run a failed experiment trying to get p kids to change, trying to get institutions, schools, middle schools to change, to provide mental health services to help kids become less stressed. And I, the program was great. The tools were great. And six weeks after I left, everything had gone back to the way it was. So meeting Peter at that point, who was you know, explaining about change and organizations and coaching was exactly the sauce I needed. So I went to work um, for Bregman Partners for a couple of years. Then after 9-11, I had a little freak out, went off on my own and got into um, coaching people on marketing. So I kind of got into the, uh, the early you know, direct marketing online world. Um, then got back to a first love of mine, which was um, health. And I got to write a few books on health and um, decided that I really preferred helping people change to convincing them to change. So I went back to kind of all the coaching skills that I'd learned with and from Peter. And the last five years have been doing a lot of health coaching along with uh, business coaching, executive, high performance. And I attended a, um, a training that Peter gave on, on coaching, which I, I attend all of them that I can. And this was going to be his last one. And it was so good that I, I threw a little temper tantrum afterwards and said, you can't stop doing this. And that kind of somehow was the germ of the idea of writing a book together. So, Peter, why was it going to be your last one? You know, it's a good question. I mean, I, I, uh, I, I think I, I love... You stumped me. Um, I mean, you shouldn't stump me on this question. This is, you know, um, I, I love, like one of my loves is training. One of my loves is being in a room with a group of people and learning and challenging. And I just, I love it. Um, I, what I don't love is marketing. I mean, Howie's an expert in marketing, but I just really don't love marketing. And so from a perspective of, you know, do I spend my time and energy you know, focused on what I also love and what I do really well, which is coaching CEOs, C-suite people. And am I going to make my impact by touching deeply 10 or 20 people who then touch millions? Or am I going to try to directly touch millions? And, you know, in my books, I hope they touch millions. But I felt like the energy and effort that I was putting into, you know, like, marketing and putting myself out there and getting people in a room, 
I just didn't like that part. And if, if someone gave me a room and gave me 30 people, you know, and said, go teach them how to coach, I, I don't think I would stop. And now Howie is sort of convincing me to kind of get back on that horse. And, and I think we're going to pull together some, you know, a training based on this book to continue to do that kind of stuff. That makes sense. I see what you're saying. As you were saying that, though, I'm going, wait, how did you start in, gosh, what was it, 98? Uh, your own firm that's still going strong, that's made you one of the top executive coaches in the world, all these things, without wanting to market. Was it just easy? The clients just came to you? Or how did this work? So, you know, I started, I, I was working for Accenture. Uh, and I was there for a year. I had worked beforehand for the Hay Group, which I really love. And I got my MBA. And, and then I worked for Accenture. And I left after a year, which was all I could take. And, and I, I learned a tremendous amount at Accenture, but it wasn't my environment. And when I was Accenture, I developed a model for a coaching business, which was, this is in 97, right? This was very kind of early days. And I developed a model for coaching business and I basically gave it to them. I said, look, I will, um, I will, I was, I gave it to them with a little bit of hubris. I basically said, look, this is a model. I don't think we should be going in as consultants and doing things for people. Like I understand that makes us indispensable to them, but it also makes us indispensable to them, which means that they can't run their companies. And that's not what we should be doing. What we should be doing is teaching people how to do the stuff that we do. So I, I, here's a, here's a model for coaching. It doesn't have to be the only thing that we do, but it's, it's about taking our methodology and supporting other people and using it effectively so that when we leave, they can still, you know, kind of leverage what we give them. And, uh, and, he, and, and here's why it makes sense from a business perspective. And here's how the finances work. And I had like a hundred spreadsheets and I had, I'd really thought through the whole business. And I said, and to do it though, I, I'm happy to do this here, but you need to make me a partner. And I mean, I was, you know, I don't know, 25 or 26. So I was, they were, that's the hubris part. I was just about to say, wait, wait, wait. I just right, want right. to make sure. So you told Accenture they had to make you a partner at 25 because of this idea. I basically said, here's this business idea. I can do it. I know how to do it. I know coaching. I'm trained as a coach. I was, a, you know, but, but yeah, like I don't, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to help you grow the business and I don't even mind not taking a salary. Just give me a percentage of the business. Like I'll just, I'll grow this business here. And they said, thank you very much. That's really great. Can you get back to the work that you were doing before? Exactly. I knew that so, was coming. Yeah. So, so I, I left and two weeks before I left, they said, oh, you're actually going to leave. Okay. We'll do it here. And at that point I was like, you know, it's kind of too late. Like I'm, I'm sort of, I've already set this up in my head as like a business I'm going to run. So thank you, but I'm going to go off and, and run this business. And to a direct answer to your question is I made $20,000 in the first uh, six months of, of doing this business. Like I didn't take any clients from Accenture. I didn't do it that way. And I, I think I sell better than I market. You know, a, a friend of mine and a good mentor, uh, an amazing mentor, uh, Marshall Goldsmith, his view is um, if you market really well, you never have to sell. And that's probably the really smart way to go about it. My way has been like, I don't know, like I hate publicly talking about how awesome I am. Like I, or, I, like I just, I'm allergic to it. I, I, I should do it. And, and it's actually hubris not to do it in a certain sense, because why should I expect people to know who I am? So, but I, I just have a hard time doing it, but I don't have a hard time in a conversation with you talking to you about how I think I could be helpful to you. So that's sales. And, and Howie after this is going to explain to me how I misunderstand marketing and how that's not really like what I'm doing with marketing and he's going to help me here. But, um, but that was my feeling. But by the end of that year, I had sold something that was worth $500,000. And then by the end of the year after that, it was a million and a half. And, and it was like the work itself spoke for itself. So once I got that first sale and once it had the impact that we, that, you know, I, I, had promised and it was having a real impact in the organization. Then we were on the map and, and then I didn't have to market so much for at least the B2B stuff. See that question. Look at all the gold it brought out. I have so many places we can go now. And the, the one that I have to understand is, and I think it's because I know our, my audience, I know uh, the questions we get and things like this. 
And I've heard two things, both Howie and Peter. So I want to address with both of you. Um, Peter, you just basically said at 25, uh, which you had your MBA. So you could have only been in the workforce for like, what, three years? I might have been. Let's see what it, do the math, Howie. I was born in 67 and this was 97. Yeah, no, 30. Sorry, I was 30. Oh, okay. Okay. So you, okay. So you've been in the workforce for a little bit myself really fast. That's all right. It helps because I'm like 25. I was a different person than 30, but even still 30 to kind of march into a center with this business plan that was not only thought out, but eventually worked, um, tell them to do it. They don't do it. Then go off on your own, turn it into a, you know, six figure business on year one. It's pretty uncommon. It takes a couple of things. In my opinion, it takes confidence. It takes skill and ability and it takes intelligence. What gave you all of those things? And what do you attribute to your success that you would say to others who, who want to do this? There's so many people who want to do, whether it be coaching or teaching or tra- who knows what, do it on their own. Uh, how were you able to make that work, especially fairly young? I'm going to give you the short answer and I'm going to give you the long answer. So the short answer, and thank God, I can offer this as a short answer because this group of people gets bashed all the time in therapy rooms around the country. My mother, my mother was very helpful. Like I got a lot of pressure uh, as a kid, but it was, but it was very helpful. And in fact, I remember, I'll tell you (laughs) sort of an embarrassing story, but I'm, you know, five, seven, five, seven and a half. And I was dating someone when I was much younger who was six feet tall. And I sort of made some jokes with her. And then I said to my mother at some point, you know, I hope I'm not giving her a complex. Like I've made some jokes, but I hope it's not. And, and she said to me, I must've done something right. If you're worried about giving her a complex. Oh my God. <laughs> so good. That's so, so good. But, but, um, but I'll give you the, I'll give you the, the sales story because I know how you've described your audience that they might be interested in this. So um, I was, it was the, the client, and I think I could share this now, you know, whatever, 30 years later, the client was Goldman Sachs. And I had, I had met somebody uh, and, and, I, and they had set up a meeting for me with the head of HR for an area. And this head of HR canceled seven meetings with me. Like I, he, I kept, you know, he kept pushing off the meeting and pushing off the meeting, pushing off the meeting. And I remember I was at the gym because I was not very busy. It was like middle of the day and I was at the gym and I got a call from him and they said, you know, he can meet you on such and such a date and such and such a time. And I almost said, no, I was so annoyed. I was almost like, you know, he's canceled six meetings with him. I'm going to give him an opportunity to cancel a seventh, which would have been a very, very dumb thing to do. But I swallowed my pride and got over myself and, and, uh, and I said yes and I came in and it turns out if, I, if we had had the meeting before that seventh meeting, it would not have worked. I would not have sold anything, right? Because they were running into a problem. He called me at that point. The reason he was willing to meet with me is because he was running into a problem with, with uh, a program that they were running and he, he couldn't solve it. If he had met with me three months earlier, he wouldn't have faced that problem. It would have been a nice meet and greet. He would have said, oh, this is a nice guy, whatever. And I never would have, I never would have uh, brought them in as a client. And so, so, we, so we get to the conversation. He goes, here's our problem. Like we're doing performance review program. We, we, it's been two years. We, have, we, we spent a ton of money on developing the competencies. And... Uh, and uh, unfortunately, we're still at less than 50%. And we're about to uh, pay people, managers, to do their uh, performance reviews, like pay them per performance review. So I literally, in that meeting, dropped on my knees, and I begged him. I said, please don't start paying your managers a la carte to manage. That is going to be something that you regret. So I said, give me six months. Give me six months to turn this around, right? Let's do a pilot project. Give me six months. Like this thing that they couldn't turn around for two years, they had brought in all the experts. And I said, and they said, I need to know that you understand competencies, right? Because this is a competency-based program. We spent a lot of money on competencies. I said, look, like you, um, you're asking the wrong question. Now, first of all, I want to tell you, I worked for the Hay Group for four years developing competencies. So I knew competencies in and out. And the Hay Group is who developed their competencies. So I I really understood the competencies. But I said, look, you're asking the wrong question. Ask me about change management. 
Ask me about how I can help people change their behavior. The competencies are ancillary. I will give you our competency dictionary and charge you nothing. How much did you pay for that competency thing? And it was a lot. I'm not going to say the amount, but it was a lot. And I said, I will give that to you. I will give it to you. But what I want you to do, by the way, it was a safe offer because they had already spent the money developing their competencies. But still, I, you know, eventually at Bregman Partners, I gave away our competencies because I said, you know, that's not the hard part. The hard part is changing behavior. That's the hard part. So he said, well, I still want you to know that you know about competencies. And so I said, okay, fine. Pick a competency model, anyone, just tell me the title and the role. Right. And so he said, okay, so analyst level two, it's a, you know, I said, so what level two is what? It's like, uh, uh, it's like, you know, right before manager, like, you know, it's like a, it's sort of still an individual contributor, but, but, you know, moving up to manager. And I said, okay, great. There's uh, now, now pick up the competency model. Don't show it to me. It's like a magic trick, right? Pick up the competency model. Don't show it to me. And I said, uh, okay, how much did you pay for these again? <laughs> they told me. And I said, okay, so there's eight competencies in the model. These are all custom, right? Yeah, they're all custom, lots of interviews, etc. Okay, great. So there's eight competency model. Here's six of them. Uh, I'm pretty sure the other two is this and that, but I might be wrong about those two, but that's what I'm pretty sure. And he looks at me, I don't know, I mean, if this is video, he looks at me like, you know? And I was like, because that's not, and I got it all right. And, and it's not because I'm a genius. It's because that doesn't matter. Like, that's not the hard part. The hard part is having difficult conversations with people. That's the hard part. I'm not not having a performance review because I don't have the criteria to have it. I'm not having a performance review because developing people is hard. Because, you know, sharing my, you know, talking with them about how they can up their game and how they can get better at what they do, that's hard and it's uncomfortable. And if I can give people a process to do that and make that easier for them, then they'll have performance review conversations. And in six months, I raised that from 50% to over 95%. And that, that level of, of, um, of performance review completion was sustained for 15 years. I stopped tracking it after that, but it was sustained for 15 years. And it was because people learn how to change other people's behavior. Not because, you know, they had all the background. Sorry, my media trainer told me answer every question in 30 seconds. And I, I got oh, don't I do that. the first one, but I'm failing these other ones miserably. I'll tell you, don't. Okay, here's some, here's, I get to give the advice. Don't answer questions in 30 seconds in a one hour podcast. Like the point okay. is we get more than that. So I appreciate yeah, it. That's true. That makes your job harder. Yeah. Well, and, yeah. And, and what you just mentioned there, changing behavior, getting people to do things. I mean, it's essentially what we're here to talk about. It's what the book's about. We're going to get there. Uh, but before we do, Howie, I wanted to ask you along these same, line, same lines of career path, because that's a big passion of mine. It's just understanding how people got to where they were, how they got to become successful. One of the things I just happened to notice as you were talking about it is it sounded really fluid and a little easy for you. Now, I'm sure it wasn't, and that's always an oversimplification, but what I liked excuse me, about the way you kind of portrayed it is you said like, here's what I did. And then I realized I like this. So I tried that and I kind of ended up doing this. It was like, I ended up writing books about health and then I got back to this and now mark or marketing. And it just sounded like, well, that's awesome. So first of all, I want to understand like how, what is your philosophy for, uh, what you do for work? And then how do you manifest that? Like, how do you make that happen? Boy, we did not practice this question with our media guy. <laughs> oh, I, I try to ask the questions yeah. that aren't practicable yeah. because this is the point, you know? My philosophy of question. work is, I guess I just, um, I really want to have fun. Um, I want to bring like a lot of joy and passion and juice to what I do. And I look around and, you know, I'm... Um, from Peter gives a shout out to his mother. My mother um, also is a, a Holocaust survivor. I grew up with a lot of um, sort of epigenetic DNA that was very negative. And so I can, you know, I look at the world and I see a lot of problems and doing work that doesn't address those problems does not interest me. So it's got to be something that I'm sort of good at working with people that I really enjoy working with and solving important problems and making the world better. I guess that's my philosophy. Um, in terms of how it manifests, 
honestly, if you could if you could rewind all the anguished conversations I've had with Peter and other people like, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. Like, really? Sort okay. Of, sort of clockwork, like every three or four years, you know, it's like this isn't working. I thought this was going to be good. I thought this was going to be fun. So every everything I've done has been like sort of dating. You yep. know, so like, oh, yeah. I, there's another characteristic I don't want again. <laughs> and now a word from this week's sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I'm honestly pumped to talk to you all about Athletic Greens. I've been using their product for about a month now every day. I was overtaking pills and vitamins on a daily basis, and I wanted something that actually tasted good, and I wanted to see what all the hype was about. And I can confidently tell you it's worth it. Athletic Greens is quick and easy, it shakes up well, and it tastes really good. It doesn't taste like you're having vitamins or trying to consume something healthy. So what is this stuff? With one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. All the things. I take AG1 every morning before my coffee and my breakfast. I get up, pour some water, pour the Athletic Greens in it, shake it up, and make sure I finish before my day gets started. Athletic Greens contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything, and it still tastes good. For me, I find it supports my mental clarity and alertness. You've got to check out Athletic Greens. They have over 7,000 five-star reviews, and it costs you less than $3 a day. You're investing in your health, and it's cheaper than your cold brew habit. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially heading into the flu and cold season. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash smart. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash smart to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. One more time, that's athleticgreens.com slash smart. And now back to the episode. Yeah. Like I, I appreciate that so much, but I'm glad you mentioned it. And and I'd like to delve in a little bit more and then you know, uh, Peter, you can chime in on this as well. But one, it's interesting to know that 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 has plagued you, right? Especially given it from the short snippet we got and the little bit of reading I was able to do about it. Like, it seems like a pretty fun, interesting, uh, worthwhile, you know, valuable path. The endeavors you went on, it, it matched a lot of your criteria, right? Meaning a purpose, solving, a, uh, solving a problem, et cetera. Um, do you think that's just the way you're wired? Do you think it's your beliefs about work and what it is? I mean, because I feel very similarly. I don't want to put my uh, my reasons on you. I'm curious about what yours are. Well, the way the way everything has worked out, um, like I'm not a foo foo guy, and yet every single time I've had an opportunity, it's because I did something without thinking about return. So actually, you know, Peter can tell the story. What, what uh, we had a meeting, we didn't really know each other. And Peter explained all this stuff to me, gave me a couple of books to read. And like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And he, he sent me an article that was sort of half written. Like, this is some of my thoughts. I'm not done with it. And I finished the article for him. <laughs> I'm like, this is oh, like, oh, my God, I get it. This is this is how I would finish this article. And, you know, the, what got me into writing about health was I. By the way, just to be clear, I've never in my life like I just gave him a bunch of books mm -hmm. and overnight he read them and 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 had like really thoughtful, uh, in, in, incisive uh, ideas and comments around it that translated in the article. So I hired him that day. Really? <laughs> yeah, I'm like, this is like a super smart guy who's engaged, who's passionate, who wants to learn. Who Like, there's no question that, that I mean, and I'm not, you know, 
it's not like I'm so uh, easy with like hiring people. Sure, of course. You know, like I, I'm, I'm afraid of spending money. Right. Um, but, but it, but it was, it was like super obvious to me. Like here's someone I want to play with for a while. How we, why do you think that was? What, what was? Oh, what's, that's that's. I mean, first what of is all, that ability? first of all, the the material was just stunning to me. And second, imagine you're a carpenter and you've never discovered a hammer and you've been hitting nails into the wood with your forehead and somebody says, hey, let me tell you about hammers. Like, oh my God, this changes everything. Like, you know. You realize you just defined yourself as Jesus, but we'll keep going. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I was wondering really quick on that, Peter, how do you, do you feel similarly or do you find that you kind of found your path and it's like the reason I'm asking, it's your business, okay? You are one of the top in the world at what you do. You have been successful. You've done it on your own. You've done it like, you know, seemingly within your bounds and your rules. It's the dream. So what's it like? Deeply unstrategic. <laughs> I, um, what I do is I do something, by the way, every business, I've started a few businesses. Every business I've started was out of frustration that I couldn't do things the way I wanted to do them in the place that I was working. So like when I first wanted to, you know, I was working with Outward Bound and I designed their business programs, their corporate programs. And a year later, I felt like I hadn't done a very good job. Like, like we were charging a lot of money and people were happy, but, but it was not sustainable. We weren't actually doing something that would change the way people operate in their business. We were giving them a fun day out. And so I said, I want to completely change um, how I want to, I want to change how I just designed this. Let me redesign it. And they said, actually it's working. And I said, but it's not really working. Like it's working, like we're selling stuff and we're making money, but it's not really working in terms of making fundamental change in organizations, which I think we can do. And, and long story short, they, I basically said, you know, let me change this or I'm going to go start my own business and do it. And I'm going to give you three months to like figure it out. Again, like the hubris, I guess, is a stream through the story. And and they, at the end of three months, like that, it just hadn't happened. So I left and I started a consulting firm working with outdoor education firms to help them do it. And uh, three months later, they hired me as a consultant, paying me three times what they were paying me when I was working internally in order to do what I had asked them to let me do internally. And I thought, I like consulting. Yeah. <laughs> this is good. Yeah. Like, like making change. I mean, I, I don't want to, I know you work internally, but my, my, I was so I a consultant. Wanna, <laughs> I don't want to bounce that, but my, my, uh, you know, my, my instinct there was like making change internally. Good. Making change from the outside better. Yeah. <laughs> like that was, that was my gut. Like that was my, you know, like, like people listen to me more when I was coming from the outside. I think it's a real struggle for people internally to make change because your ideas are stronger, but somehow the, it, like, for, and, and it should not be this way, Chris. It should not be this way. In fact, internally, you are so much better positioned to make change in an organization than I am externally because you understand the dynamics and the culture better than I do. And it's why when I go in, it's why, you know, back to the Accenture story, I never wanted to go in and just make change in an organization. I always work in really tight partnership with other people in the organization. That's why I believe in coaching because you understand the organization. I may understand some stuff around change. Yeah. But, but I, uh, but that, you know, and then, and then every time I've changed my company, which I've done probably three or four or five times over the past 20, whatever, 25 years. Um, I've done it because I'm, I, I'm, I'm getting a little bored and I'm feeling like, and by the way, it's why it's hard for me to scale. I'm, I get a little bored and I feel like we're not quite hit. Like I'm always looking at the outcome I'm trying to create. You know, um, Frederick Buechner has this great, great quote. I love it. Your vocation in life and, and I would even call this calling. I mean, he was a, he was a um, theologian, so we can call it colon, but he said, uh, we can call it calling. But he said, your vocation life is where your greatest joy meets the world's greatest need. And I, I think that is the strategy of my career, which is I'm like, I, I'm seeing a need here 
and I'm not having fun, I'm gonna change something, or I'm having a ton of fun, but I don't feel like I'm really hitting at the need as much as possible, so I'm gonna change something. And the reason it makes that hard to scale is because, and this is what Accenture did really, really well, is replicate methodology across 50,000 people. Exactly. The only way you replicate methodology across 50,000 people is if you define the methodology and you say, the methodology is our focus and we, and we believe in it and we're going to apply that uh, you know, for the next 20 years. And so it's worth us training. And I've never felt that. I felt like for me, the outcome is the focus. Like what I care about is the outcome and I will use any, I keep changing my methodology based on what I think helps us to achieve the outcome more effectively. That's what gives me joy. Mm. And that's where that intersection of greatest joy meets the world's greatest need. It's, I think you're articulating it extremely eloquently. And when I mean it, it's this difference I've noticed in almost 400 interviews with different personalities, different type of people. There's a difference in like, what your goals are and who you are, and then what you need to do to accomplish them. So there are plenty of people who want to do this stuff internally or want to do it in different ways. What I've found over about a decade is, especially learning about other people, is for me, it's really strange to um, believe that not everyone thinks the same way I do. So like I tend to think just like you uh, in this in this idea, and it's been hard in corporate settings internally. So for five years early on in my career, I worked in a large company and I said never again. And I didn't for the next 15. And I just started again a year ago. And it's an interesting experiment. And I thought there was a lot I could learn and I am. But to your point, for those middle 10, 15 years as a consultant, as external, it's because you can come in, they're paying you a lot. So they have to technically value or at least listen to you. You can say kind of, the thing you really want, probably the thing everybody else already knows, but isn't saying because you're not going to get fired for it. You're going to be celebrated for it. And if you're internal, a lot of times in a lot of places, it's just survival. It's just kind of, they've beat into you, keep your head down so you don't get fired. I've said it, you know, a lot of times internal work, not everywhere is people justifying their salary. So I don't think that's the good goal. I, I, Chris, I agree with you a hundred percent in terms of what makes you successful. And, and I would say that every time when I've been internal, every time I've gotten promoted, it was when I said, you know what? I don't care anymore. I'm going to say what I think is true. Let them fire me yep. because I'm ready to leave anyway. And I always say to people who are willing to quit, who just kind of want to quit out of that frustration, the worst thing you can do is quit at this point because you are in the perfect training ground to, to, to as skillfully as you can speak what is true for you in a way that is supportive of the growth of the organization and the growth of the people around you. And if they fire you for that, fine. But chant, every single time I've done that, I've gotten promoted. And, and it is true that from the outside, I, I've diversified my client base such that if I say something that gets me fired, and the truth is that has happened to me once or twice, where I've said something that's true and I beat myself up for it. I'm like, God, I, I, I should have said it in a different, I never say I shouldn't have said it. I just say like, I should, I should have better skill at this. I need to, I, I should see where that CEO is and, and recognize that he couldn't hear that. And, and in, in both cases, um, the CEO's not there anymore because you know, which, which is predictable also. Sure. But, but if I'm not willing to get fired in my work for the right reasons, then, then it's not fun for me or interesting to me, or I'm not really meeting the world's need. Yeah, no, I understand that. So I want to get into, I've got your book here. Um, the book is you can change other people, the four steps to help your colleagues, employees, even family up their game. And I want to start with an area that has been covered a number of times on this already, which is this idea of confidence. You've called it hubris. Um, what, what, do, what recommendations do you have for people to either build their own confidence or help build the confidence in others? How are you want me to take this or you want to take this? I'll, I'll, I'll start. Um, Go for it. So the, I think to me the question is like confidence in what? So in, in my work in, in uh, health education, 
there in health change, there's a very popular model called the trans-theoretical model, also known as stages of change. And it's very, very useful in thinking about where people are. Do they, you know, are they ready to try? Are they just thinking about it? Are they in maintenance phase? But what I discovered is it, be it became um, like very useless in practice because the question is always ready to change what? And so, you know, you're talking to someone who's like, okay, I've got, I've got to up my game to a certain level to take on this new role in the organization, or I absolutely have to stop eating sugar, or, you know, something big. And then, you know, if you're giving, getting people confident to do that, it's often false confidence, because confidence comes from experience. It doesn't come from rah-rah and motivation and, uh, and cheering. So what we always try to do is like, what, what are you confident to do to break things up into small steps? Does P mm. Peter's talk, you know, has the phrase laddering sort of, okay, if this is too much, you know, what isn't too much? So, and uh, Peter had a guest on his podcast a while back, Annie Duke, who wrote a wonderful book called Thinking in Bets. And that really influenced the way I work with clients. And now I ask, you know, when they were getting ready to do something, okay, would you bet on yourself? Would you bet a painful amount of money on you'll do this? And that changes the conversation from, yes, I'll do it because I don't want to lose faith or I want to, don't want to disappoint you or I really want the outcome that that will bring me to a little bit of pause, soul searching. Like, what am I really confident that I can do? And every time you do something that you say you're going to do, you build that sort of integrity that, that I tell the truth to myself muscle. And then the next thing that's a little bit harder becomes more accessible. So that, that's how I think about building confidence. Now, it's a, it's a really good point. How much do you think uh, it is the role of somebody else to help with these things? You know, because one of the themes I saw in your book is this idea that, right, it's called you can change other people, that we should change other people, that it's our job, our role to change other people. And the area that I've gotten tripped up on a bunch is that I know enough to change that person always seems, you know, there's a lot of nuance there. How do you view that as coaches where the job is to change other people, essentially? Um, you know, the, the first step to changing other people is to become their ally instead of their critic, right? So almost always when we come in wanting to change someone, it's because we either see something that's frustrating us or angering us or making us sad, or we see an opportunity that's being missed that we think could be helpful to them. And certainly if we're leaders or managers or coaches, you know, we're, we're, we're wanting to help other people be as successful as possible. So um, the, the, the first step is to say, you know, what do I want for this person? And how do I approach this as as uh, how do I get permission? How do I approach this as an ally, as a support to them, as opposed to, you know, the, the driver of the change? So what we mean by you can change other people isn't that you will change everybody that you want to change. It's not manipulative. It's not, there's no magic word we're going to give you. It's about how do you get on the same team with people that you want to help and become a resource for them so that you can help them. It is very hard to change on your own. It's just very hard. It's, it's, it's lonely. You've probably tried a million times, you know, especially for the changes that we're talking about where there's a stuckness to it. You know, you're trying to change and, and you're struggling with it. Um, it's, you, you probably tried and, and not, you know, if you're stuck with it, you haven't succeeded by yourself. So it really helps to have community. It really helps to have support. And we're not suggesting that you know the answer to their problem. What we are suggesting is there are certain steps, there are certain things you can do and say that will make you an ideal partner to help them move forward in the thing that they most want to move forward in. Hey everyone, Chris here for a message from our sponsor. And look, don't get used to me coming on here, being the one talking about these. But again, I'm loving the sponsors we are getting. Did you know that stress makes you stupid? Our body's stress response seriously impacts the way our brain works. So in this episode, as we're talking about peak mind, are you even able to get there? Our sponsor this week is Tonic. 
Intonic is, in my opinion, the best CBD product on the market. Now, look, I know you've all heard about CBD, and many of you are probably considering trying it out. But do you trust it? Do you know what's in it? Etc. What sets Tonic apart is the quality of their formulas and the transparency they offer. The whole product starts with their certified, organic, family-owned craft hemp farm. Tonic then turns that hemp flower into CBD oil, creates their own blends, and ships them out to you all under the same roof. The product literally never leaves their site. I've been using it for months now. My favorite is called the OG, and it's not just CBD. It is a blend of CBD, ashwagandha, and black seed oil. And because of that, it helps me break through fog, brush off stress, especially in the craziest time of the year, which is this fourth quarter. If you've been considering CBD, if you've heard about all the benefits for your brain and your body, give Tonic a try. And guess what? We're hooking you up with an offer you can't find elsewhere. It's 20% off your order. Head to tonicvibes.com slash smart people and get 20% off. Again, that's tonicvibes.com slash smart people. Get 20% off and finally feel the benefits of what everyone's talking about. All right, let's get back to it. Well, you know where I'm going now. I mean, that's media training. It's set you up. What are those steps? So start us off here. I got the, the beer ally, and I have a question that I want to ask later, but while we're on this subject, um, what, what are those steps? You know, how do you approach it that in a way that others listening might be able to actually do? Not the, you know, Peter and Howie we've been coaching for decades and decades. Well, for me, a lot of it is, you know, especially when we added the even family, I'm like, oh boy, is, is there a difference between how I do it professionally and how I naturally do it as a parent, as a spouse, as a, as a sibling, right? So it was like, oh, like the, our impulses are, uh, are often going to lead to resistance. And so a lot of this is just sort of counterintuitive. It's for a lot of people, it's counterintuitive in the workplace um, as well, right? So the what what we want to do is is understand what are the motive, what are our motivating emotions that are leading us to act in certain ways, and can we harness them again? You know, what one of the things Peter has taught me relentlessly over the last twenty two years is focus on outcome. Ask about outcome. Ask what what do you want? What do they want? Because if we're if we're not thinking about outcome, we're just reacting to whatever's happening in the moment. So if I'm angry or frustrated or scared because I, the way I see someone behaving, I'm gonna approach them as a critic. If I try not to, it's gonna leak. So I have to work on myself first, right? So one of the things I can do is forgive myself or understand that my, whatever my negative thoughts are and negative emotions are really um, a manifestation of a positive intent. I'm scared because I care about them. I'm frustrated because this is an outcome that's important to me. And that, then I start feeling, then I can become an ally of myself instead of criticizing myself or criticizing others. And then that attitude is, very, is pretty easily extended out into the world. Oh, right, I see Chris, you're doing something that's really counterproductive and you're kind of you know, um, digging your heels in. Well, what's your positive intent? What, what is that behavior doing for you? What are you trying to do, right? So that all of a sudden I have some compassion, I have empathy, um, and, I, and I don't have to leak those, those judgments that would put me in a superior position to you, right? So I can, come, I can come at you very cleanly and say, boy, it looks like you're struggling here. I would love to help. What do you say? I really like that. I wrote it down, what you mentioned, motivating emotions. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that and how you identify them and utilize those? Yeah, well, I mean, mo mo emotions are the motivators for everything we do, right? Just on a purely neurological, biological level, emotions basically say there is something you need that you don't have right now. Go fill the gap. And so when the emotions are, are negative, they're driving, you know, it's okay to have negative emotions. It's okay to run away out of fear. <laughs> it's okay to defend yourself out of anger, right? The motivations are sort of mapped onto um, different needs and different violations that we can feel. And the trouble is we, 
we, we often have motivation, you know, these emotions that become our signatures. So, you know, so Peter's talking about like his great confidence that somehow he has this confidence to be able to do all these things. Um, I can feel like a signature of mine is kind of a pessimism a negativity. So if I don't if I don't know it and I don't work on myself and notice my patterns, then I'm going to bring that signature to every single situation. So Peter's danger is he's going to come in smarter than everybody and know it all. My danger is I'm going to come in critical of everybody and, you know, and my kids will tell me like I'll walk into the room and they'll, they'll say, like, don't judge me. I'm like, I didn't say anything like they're eating some food. I'm like, you were judging me with your eyes. <laughs> like, OK, so I got I got to know that. And so then I can but I can I don't have to say I have to get rid of that. Right. These are these are very useful things to have as long as we're in control. So I say, OK, so this was the driving thing. But now where is my heart? Where is the where? How can I make this a manifestation of love and respect and caring as opposed to of my need to feel OK? You mentioned there the emotions going into it or, you know, you were talking about Peter's confidence, your skepticism. What if that primary default is something you actually think doesn't serve you? Is there a way to. Do you try to change it? Is it just simple awareness that will allow you to be more effective? I mean, what do you do when you feel that your default is is actually not helping all that much? You know, so a couple of things. First of all, I, I think this um, image of me as like super confident might be a little overblown. <laughs> like where, you know, like like I'm I'm very risk averse. And and I and so I mean, this is sort of part of the conversation, which is I think I have some confidence but at the same time, like I think my company would probably be 10 times as big if I had more confidence. But I, I um, you know, I'm kind of risk averse in, in what I do. And, and I and it's not confidence so much as it is like I care, like I see something and I and 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 a very low tolerance for sort of boredom or wasting my time. And that drives me to doing certain things. So I think. It's like, so, so the reason I'm bringing that up is because I think what might look like confidence in the outside world might be motivated by a very different emotion. Like it might look like I'm really confident, but I'm actually just intolerant of, of boredom or suboptimum work. Like, I, like and, and then it, it kind of shows up in that other way. Um, but I, I, I also think, you know, to your question, if you have something that you like I'm going to take something actually very, very concrete that's that's less of an emotion, but a behavior that doesn't serve me, which we've, you know, how we touched on. But I, I eat way too much sugar. Like I just I really like sugar and and it doesn't serve me and it's not helpful. Right. But if I stop and I say, OK, so what is and this actually goes back to the book in terms of the third step. So the, the four steps are you know, critic to ally, right? That, that you're like, that's, right. that's the first thing that you're doing. Um, and then you're uh, focusing on what the outcome is, right? What is the outcome you're going for? And then you're finding the opportunity in the problem, right? So if my problem is I'm eating too much sugar and the outcome is I want to be healthy, fit, and an athlete, right? Notice that the outcome isn't, I don't want to eat sugar. Like there's a reason I don't want to eat sugar. Sugar is the problem. Eating too much sugar is the problem. But it's only a problem because of this other outcome I want, which is bigger than the problem. It's I want to be an athlete, right? I want to be fit and an athlete and keep up with my kids. And so then the question is, well, what is the opportunity in the problem? And then you start to explore the problem a little more. And the question of why I eat so much sugar if you, you know, if, if you witnessed the coaching that Howie does to me or it does with me, then you realize, oh, so the reason actually what is, you know, the question to ask is what is this bad thing doing for you that's good? Like what is sugar, this thing that's like a terrible thing? Everybody writes about it, more addictive than cocaine, definitely not healthy for you, obesity crisis. What's good about it? Like what's good about it? And what's good about it is I realize I, it's, it's almost the only way I relax. Like I sit there and I have a bowl of ice cream and I'm not working and I'm just relaxing. And then as soon as I stop eating the ice cream and I'm tired too, I'm tired all the time because I, I push myself really hard. And so this is a break. 
and the, the sugar gives me this brief, you know, pick me up. And so it's like giving me energy in the moment and it's a moment of relaxation. So there are these good things that sugar is doing for me, only it comes with really, really negative consequences. So then the next question is, okay, so if that's the, the opportunity is that you actually need rest. You need to rest more, Peter. You need to relax more. The sugar is doing something in a possibly dysfunctional way that is reflecting a need that you really have. Let's actually talk about that need and how to get the kind of rest and the kind of relaxation and the kind of break that you need in your life so that you can be fit and healthy and an athlete, so that you can achieve that outcome. And so when, even if there's a negative thing that's going on, it's useful to look at how that negative thing is serving you. Because how that negative thing is serving you is a magic gold nugget that can help you figure out how to move forward in a productive, positive way. I really like that. So let's make sure, you know, kind of try and simplify this here. You kind, you look at what outcome you want. Here's what I want to accomplish. And then why it's not being accomplished. What's the obstacle? What's the problem? What's the thing preventing me from doing it? And then as you analyze that, you say, well, then why are you doing this thing? What, it, what, what benefit is it bringing you? Is that fair? And then utilize that. Yeah, that is one of, like, there's a lot of different ways to do the opportunity stage, the opportunity okay. step. And that's one of the, one of the ways of doing it is to say, look, the reason, the reason you want to change almost always is because there's this problem, mm -hmm. right? So don't, so step two, don't focus on the problem, focus on the outcome that you want. Now, the problem in your eyes is getting in the way of the outcome. I've got a person on my team who speaks over everybody, who's aggressive, who doesn't make room for anybody, who's intransigent. That person's a problem. He's a problem, right? Now, if I, that's, so that's what I come to. That's what I want to change. I want to change that person on my team. So the easy answer to that kind of a problem is fire the person and you're done. No more aggression, no more like intransigence, no more pushing. But if you actually go through the process and you go, okay, I'm, I'm an ally and, and that person's a problem, but what's the outcome? Well, the outcome isn't a team without an aggressive person. The outcome is I want a high performing team. I want a team that really is high performing. Now you go back to the problem and you go, okay, so what's, and I mean, I'm just talking about this one method of, sure. of getting to the opportunity. Well, is there, is there something good about this bad behavior? Yeah, this person speaks up when the rest of us are super polite. They bring real truths to the table that we need to deal with when everybody else would stuff it down. And they move us to decisions when we would just sit around, talk, and be pleasant. So actually, if you cut this person off the team, you're not achieving our outcome. You're solving your problem, but you're not achieving the outcome. Right? So then the question is, now we have this opportunity. How do I integrate this person in a way where we can leverage everything that's good about them? without having it dragged down the team. And what do we need to do as the rest of the team to step up to make this a more high performing team where we can engage in conflict where otherwise there wouldn't be conflict. Now that's really strong coaching. Like, okay, here's, here's, what, here's what I consider to be not great coaching is, uh, okay, you have a problem. Like, okay, I have a sugar problem. Okay, so great. So by when are you gonna stop eating sugar? Like by next week, great, put it in the calendar. Okay, and if you do eat sugar, then what's gonna happen? What's the consequence, okay, right? And, and here's like, you know, also not great coaching, which is, and it's not terrible coaching, but I'm saying it doesn't work effectively. It's not optimum coaching, it's not great coaching, which is to say, okay, you have this problem, this, this you know, uh, uh, person on your team who's really aggressive. So give them feedback tell them they're really aggressive and tell them they have to stop being really aggressive. Have you given them, have you told them that they're really aggressive, right? I would say the chance of that working is less than 10%, right? Less than 10%. First of all, you're the polite person on the team who's having a hard time with them. Chances are you're never gonna even follow through with giving that person feedback because that's conflict in itself and that's part of the problem. Second of all, if you give an aggressive person feedback that they're being too aggressive, how are they gonna respond? right? They're going to be aggressive. Like that's what they're doing. Right. 
And, and three is you're missing the larger opportunity. You're missing the larger picture. And what great coaches do is they're able to step out of the, like empathy is really important, but instead of empathizing so much with the person that you take on their problems, you empathize with the situation and then you step back and you go, what's the bigger picture here? What's the dynamic? What's going on? And how do I help them address how do I help them focus on the outcome that they want and find opportunity in the problems that they have in order to then achieve the outcomes that they want? That's great coaching. And you know why I love that? It, it kind of ties together a couple of things we talked about. I, I was thinking about down here, I got my studio over there to the left. I have my gym. Okay. This gym, I just bought, uh, I got a row machine. I got some weights that clearly have not seen as much time on them as I want. Um, and a very common problem that I will state is time, right? And it, and look, everybody does, right? Uh, and it's legitimate. So one of the things I've been struggling with is if it's a legitimate problem, like really is when you map out the day and the hours and the time, how do I solve it? But just reframing this, this idea of, well, what's the opportunity, right? What is the goal? What's the outcome I want? Okay. And it has to do similar things. I got little kids. I play softball. I'm starting to feel my age, all these things. Um, the emotion changes, just viewing it from that lens, just the really small tweak, not rocket science, but I just noticed as, as you were saying it, all of a sudden I'm less focused on, I don't have time and more focused on how do I work towards this goal? And that's just a different way of thinking. Beautiful. Beautiful. It's crazy. I like it. It's a great place. I know we're wrapping up here. Last thing I wanted to ask you on this, um, what's the fourth step? So we talked about it's uh, ally, focus on outcome. Wait, what did I miss that? What's the third one? Third one's opportunity. It, there's a, there's a, yeah, give them the, give them Let's the go, Okay. Yeah. So if, uh, Chris, if you've ever played basketball, there's a, there's, there's a pass called an alley-oop, mm -hmm. right? Sets your team up, teammate up for a slam dunk. So ours is ally-oop, ally, outcome, opportunity, and plan. And differentiate for, for me again, um, the difference between opportunity and outcome or outcome and opportunity? Yeah, out outcome is what they're going for. So it's okay. almost always useful all, right up front when people come at with us with problems, they're frustrated, they're negative, they're in sort of a fight or flight defensive mode and people don't mm -hmm. think very well in that state. They're not very generative. Ah. Um, so by asking about opportunity, all of a sudden, like when you heard about opportunity and now you're thinking, what's my opportunity to, to row, to lift those weights, to get into my gym? Now you can, your brain just starts thinking in a different way. It's got a lot more resources. Opportunity is then given, given the, the outcome and the problem, how can the problem help us um, you know, achieve that opportunity as opposed to just eliminating the problem? Got it. And one way to think about it, Chris, is outcome is what you're going for. Opportunity is what you're going to do to get there. Interesting. And then, so then how does opportunity differ from plan? Step four. Okay. So, so the opportunity is how, what is our approach? Like, so, so what is, what is the situation I'm in and what is the approach I could use to achieve my outcome? And how do I leverage this problem? this thing that I that was annoying and nagging at me, how do I leverage it in order to get to the outcome that I want to get? How does it become a good thing in order to get to the outcome? And then the plan is, what am I gonna to do to follow through? So this is the part that a lot of coaches get right, and, and but the problem is, it's usually 90% of the coaching, which is what am I gonna do, by when, how am I gonna do it, how do I know I'm successful? And we talk about a level 10 plan. So the, the question that we always ask as part of the planning stage is, what is your confidence level, one to 10? One being I'm not confident at all, 10 being I'm completely confident that you're gonna follow through. So the idea of the plan is not that it's gonna succeed. The idea of the plan is you're gonna follow through on it and you're gonna learn something from it. And it may succeed and it may not, but it's an experiment. So what I care about is that you create a plan that you're gonna follow through on. And so if the likelihood is a six, you know, if the, if the, the, you know, then, then my next question is, okay, well, what's going to make it a 10 or what's the gap or where is, and we're going to solve for that. So that there's a high confidence level that you're going to follow through on something that's going to give you information that's going to help you to succeed in the long term. I love it. I love it. Well, you know, we just scratched the surface. 
For those listening, you can get dig into way more detail in the book. It's fantastic. It's called You Can Change Other People, The Four Steps to Help Your Colleagues, Employees, Even Family Up Their Game. Howie and Peter, I really appreciate you both being on. I wanted to spend this last minute and just ask you both, um, where can where would you push us if we wanted to learn more? Of course, we'll link to the book, but we're interested in this idea of coaching, of influencing others. Maybe we're a leader. Maybe want to influence a family member. You know, other resources. Are you writing? What's going on? So the best place to go is bregmanpartners.com, uh, B-R-E-G-M-A-N partners.com. And, uh, and Howie and I are also in the midst of talking about, we haven't designed it yet, but we're in the midst of talking about a, you know, some kind of a training, some kind of a something to really play with putting these things into work. So Howie has gotten me back on the horse of saying, let's all get in a room and, and train this stuff. And we're, you know, anything that we write or anything you could find on BregmanPartners.com. I love it. Howie, anything to add? No, that's the place I'd go. All right. Sounds good. Well, again, thank you both so much. Really appreciate it. Chris, such a pleasure being with you. Thanks so much for having us. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks so much. All right. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Peter Bregman and Howie Jacobson. As a reminder, their book, You Can Change Other People, The Four Steps to Help Your Colleagues, Employees, Even Family, Up Their Game, is available now wherever books are sold. All right, let's go through the quick housekeeping items here. If you'd ever like to reach out to Smart People Podcast, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And of course, if you want to keep up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, check us out on our website, smartpeoplepodcast.com, and sign up for the newsletter. And if you're feeling giving or you just want to support us financially, you can do so by becoming a patron over at Patreon. So head over to patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. And if you want to help us out in a free and easy way, just leave us a rating or review on whatever app you downloaded the podcast on, or just send an episode to a friend or family member. Anything you do really does help, and we greatly appreciate it. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up, and we'll see you all next episode.